There is a picture, and in the center of the picture is a busy thoroughfare, a busy road with many people traveling in cars, traveling along this road. And then off to the side, there is a little trail that leads deep into the woods. And on that trail, only a few people were walking. And the caption of this picture is, The Road Least Traveled. The Road Least Traveled. When I think of the road that is least traveled, I think of Scripture. Because for many, we are concerned about our careers, about our families, about our education. But few seem to travel the road of Scripture and the Word of God. And yet this is the road that leads to life. To know the mind of God. To know the revelation of God himself in Scripture. This road which is least traveled, is the road that leads to heaven. The book of Colossians, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, is not, even among Christians, one of the paths that is often traveled. Maybe it is because of the polemic nature of this work. But one writer, Paul Hill, describes Colossians as a big savior in a small church. And that's what we want to look at, because the book of Colossians emphasized the grandeur and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the city of Colossae was in the area known as the Lycus Valley in southwestern Turkey today. It was one of three neighboring cities of Hierapolis and Laodicea. These cities were approximately 10 or 11 miles apart from each other, and Colossae was about 100 miles away from Ephesus. The Apostle Paul did not evangelize Colossae. However, when he visited Asia, and in particular Ephesus, He preached there, and we read in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. It it, it appears then that when Paul came to Ephesus and preached the gospel, there were people from other parts of the Roman Empire who came to hear the gospel. And one of them was a prophet who heard the gospel and took it to Colossae, and God was pleased through his efforts to save men and women. Sometime after, perhaps about five years after, Paul was imprisoned in house arrest in Rome, from which he wrote the twin epistle of Colossians and Ephesians. He writes to believers who had begun to take on board strange teachings. Strange teachings that Paul labels as hollow and deceptive philosophy. 
which depends upon human tradition and the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ in chapter 2, verse 8. While there is some discussion about the nature of the heresy that the Colossian, or Colossian church faced, it appears that this heresy came from two sources. First of all, it was rooted in Jewish mysticism and ascetism. It was rooted in taking on board Jewish practices that were empty, empty tradition, Paul calls them in chapter 2, verse 8. They celebrated special days and venerated angels. So on one hand, they were being influenced by the empty traditions of Judaism. On the other hand, they seem to have been impacted by the pagan culture that surrounded them. There seems to have been a fear of what Paul calls the principalities and the powers, the forces of darkness. And so the writer responds to these issues within the church in Colossae by presenting a high Christology, a high view of Christ as the antidote to the adventure into Jewish mysticism and into pagan practices. The New Testament writer A.M. Hunter says that to all who seek to improve Christianity by admixing it with spiritualism or subterraneanism or occultism or some extra, this book utters a warning that what Christ is and has done for salvation is enough. We need no extra mediators or taboos or ascetics, and to piece out the gospel with the rags and tatters of alien culture is not to enrich it, but to corrupt it. And that's what they were doing. They were adding their bits, their rags and tatters to the gospel, and were therefore corrupting it. This is a marvelous work. John Calvin says that this book of Colossians distinguishes true Christians from fictitious ones. Now, in general terms, we may divide this work into broadly three main parts. The first chapter deals with the introduction and prayer of the Apostle Paul for believers and a hymn to the Lord Jesus Christ, a hymn that focuses on the preeminence of Christ. In chapter 2, the writer picks up and launches an attack against the false teachers, and then in chapters 3 and 4, there are primarily instructions for the Christian life. But I draw your attention to the first eight verses of our text. The introduction and the thanksgiving of the Apostle Paul. And I want to suggest as we look at these eight verses, that there are three things that stand out before us. First of all, this text, this passage says something about the Christian's identity. It says, secondly, something about the Christian's character. And thirdly, it says something about the Christian's salvation. First and foremost, then, the text reveals that the Christian's identity 
is defined and shaped by the relationship with Christ. Notice the apostle begins with the obligatory introductory greetings. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So he sends greetings, and he tells them first, uh, the sender. This epistle comes from Paul and from Timothy, our brother. But notice he defines himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That he is the agent of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is being sent by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the will of God. That he did not take upon himself to write to them. Because somehow he thought it was a good thing to do. No, he has been called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And by God's will. And therefore what he writes must be accepted as the divine communication or a communication that comes from the will of God. But having identified the sender, Paul an apostle, and Timothy our brother, he identifies the recipients to the saints and the faithful and faithful brethren in Christ. Who are in Colossae. Now he turns to them and identifies them. There are in fact a few things that he says about these believers. He identifies them as holy and faithful. To the saints. Unfaithful brethren. Brothers and sisters. They are saints. Not that they are perfect. But they are set apart. They are consecrated to God and to the service of God. And they are described as faithful brethren. Those who live in truth before the Lord. He identifies them thirdly as those who are not only holy and faithful. But that they are children of God. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in colossal grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. They belong to God. They have the Lord as their father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But primarily the text would have us know that God is their father. They are children of God. And he will make the same point later in chapter 3 verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But the significant statement regarding their identity is found in the first part of verse 2 when he says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. What he does in this text is remind them that their identity is defined by and shaped by this unique relationship with Christ. He says... That they are in Colossae and in Christ. And these are parallel expressions to the, faith, to the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae, in Christ. He identifies them first geographically. They are in Colossae. This is where the church is located. This is where 
the Lord has been pleased to save them. But he says something more significantly. Not just about their geographical location, but their Christological location. He says that they are in Christ. And this in crystal, in crystal is indeed a statement of great significance, a phrase of great significance in the writing of Paul. For it points out their union with Christ. And this is what shapes the uniqueness of the church and of believers, that believers are in Christ. This expression means several things. First and foremost, it indicates the sphere in which they live, in Christ, the locality, the location. They're living in the spheres of Christ, meaning they're living under the lordship and under the reign of Christ. They are in Christ. They're under his spiritual reign. And perhaps this is what is intended when the writer later in chapter 1 would say in verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. In Christ Jesus. That we may present every man perfect under the reign and under the leadership and headship under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But the language of in Christ not only points to the sphere in which they live under the reign and the lordship of Christ, it actually points to this mysterious spiritual union with Christ, what is called incorporation in Christ or participation in Christ, that the believers are in Christ, not only in the locality or the sphere of Christ, but they are in Christ United to him as a body is united to a head. And we see examples of this again, this doctrine of union with Christ in chapter 2, 9 to 12, where he says, For in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principalities and powers. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. In which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Here the writer speaks of two unions with Christ. There is, a, there is a union of God the Father with Christ. All the fullness, all the plentitude, all of the divine nature rests and dwells fully in Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father are united. All that is true of God is to be found in Jesus Christ. The second union is that of the believer with Christ. And he speaks of the believer as participating in Christ. We were circumcised in him. He's speaking about conversion. He says we were buried with him in baptism. We were raised to newness of life in him. We are joined to Christ. We have been joined to Christ that we participate in him by the Holy Spirit who joins us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that his death becomes our death and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. This notion of participation in Christ is also pursued later when in 
Colossians 2.20, the writer says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why live as though, why are you subject then to these regulations? In Colossians 2.20, in chapter 3, verse 1, if you then were raised with Christ, they are in union with him, and they've been raised with him, spatially, they are in heaven with him. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. What this means then, that for the apostle, the believer's identity is not primarily defined by blood or by nationality or by culture, but by relationship to Christ. We see then the distinctive identity of believers as those who are united to Jesus Christ. The criterion, one writer says, by which our spiritual status is measured is whether or not we are in Christ. But the Apostle Paul, having looked at the Christian's identity as uniquely related to Jesus Christ, turns to show that the Christian's character consists of the triad of faith, love, and hope. In fact, in verse 4, or rather in verse 3, he begins this thanksgiving. And immediately he identifies, distinguishes the character of Christians. He says, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Here, as he begins to give thanks to them, he specifies, he delineates the character of Christians. He is not saying that these virtues are the only virtues that Christians possess, but that these are the indispensable, distinctive mark of Christian character. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. What is he thanking God for? Because they're genuine Christians. And how does Paul know that they're genuine Christians? Since we heard of your faith. See, he had not visited them. Epaphras was related to him. But what Epaphras told Paul was that these believers were genuine Christians. And how, how, how does Epaphras and Paul know they're genuine Christians? Because they have the mark of Christian character. And he lists the three marks of Christian character. First of all, he says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. They were characterized by faith. Now we're not going to repeat the things we've said this morning. But I want to point out to you that there's a sense in which the writer of Hebrews, and in chapter 11, gives a different view of faith. Not a contradictory view of faith, but a more nuanced view of faith than Paul does. For the writer of Hebrews, at least in chapter 11, he sees faith 
as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that for him faith is assurance, solid assurance in God's promises and in future invisible realities. So for the writer of Hebrews, faith is forward-looking. Faith is tied to the future. But for the Apostle Paul, primarily, and I know this is an oversimplification, but you will indulge me. For the Apostle Paul, faith is not so much that which is forward-looking, but rather that which is backward-looking. Because essentially for Paul, faith is that which rests upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the Apostle Paul, this matter of faith consists of knowledge and agreement and trust. The Apostle Paul sees faith then as the basis of justification. And he was saying in Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The Apostle Paul will reiterate this in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the Galatians who were turning aside to a strange gospel, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul sees Justification by faith, not as a minor crater in his theology, but at the very heart and substance, the warp and woof of faith, that we are justified, we are declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And Paul believes not only that we are justified by faith, but that we live out our union with Christ by faith. Writing to the Ephesians in chapter 3.17, he says, He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you might, you're being rooted and grounded in love. The Apostle Paul recognizes that we experience union with Christ by faith. For him, faith is that which sanctifies. It is the basis of our perseverance. In Ephesians 6.16, for instance, above all else, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And so faith, for the Apostle Paul, is the initiative of the Christian life. It is at the beginning of the Christian life, essential for salvation. But for him, the distinctive characteristic of the Christian is love. And that is why he says, not only since we heard of your faith in Christ, and of your love for all the saints. You see, if Christian identity is defined by the relation to the Christ, then the Christian character is marked by faith and now by love. That which distinguishes the believer is love. Our Lord Jesus Christ could make that point in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. As I have loved you, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you love one another. For by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Yep. The Lord Jesus Christ places love as the linchpin 
of the Christian life. This love is rooted in God's love for us. In 1 John 4, 10 and 11, he says, For this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love that believers express towards others is nothing else than the supernatural love of God poured out in our hearts. When we love one another, it is because God's love has been poured out in our hearts first. We do not have the capacity of ourselves to truly love and love sacrificially except we have come to know God's love for us. This love, as I've indicated, is not essentially emotional, sentimental, but it is sacrificial. It is a love that is not only limited to family and friends, but it is a love that is expressed for all the saints. Paul had heard that they possessed faith. Faith and the object of faith is Christ. But they also possess love. But a universal love for all the saints. Not only those in Colossae but wherever they are named. For those who were in Philippi and Ephesus and Hierapolis. Wherever they may be found they had a love for all the saints. That's the character of the Christian. The Christian loves the people of God. And this love, this love which stems from God's love for them, it's a love that is produced in the heart by the Spirit. If you go down to verse 8, he says that they learned the gospel in verse 7 from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. You see, the Christian love that was evident in Colossae was not an ordinary love. It was a love in the Spirit. It is a love that was generated in them by the Spirit. It is a love that was fostered in them by the Spirit. You see, he said, we heard from... Epaphras, who declared to you your love in the Spirit. This love was produced by the Spirit. The third characteristic of the Christian is that of hope. Not only did Paul hear that they possess faith in Christ and love for all the saints, but they also were people who exhibited hope because of the hope in verse 5, which is laid up for you in heaven, which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. These were people who had love, faith, and hope. And we have made this point repeatedly, that biblical hope must not be seen as mere optimism. Anybody can be optimistic. Rather, believers' hope is not subjective, but objective. You get an inclination of this when he says of the hope that they had. He says their hope is stored up. Stored up in heaven. It means that their hope is with God. It's not a subjective thing. Hope is with God. It, it points to the certainty and the security of their hope because their hope lies in God. 
you see something of the objective nature of hope. Because this hope, he says, comes to them through the gospel. Through the gospel. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. This is not just a subjective feeling. The gospel proclaimed hope as an objective reality. But for the writer of Hebrews, the objective nature of this hope is revealed in the fact that their hope is tied to Jesus Christ. And that is why he could say in in chapter 1, verse 27 of this book of Colossians, he says, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What they had was not just mere optimism, merely wishing for a better day tomorrow. Their hope was Christ. And the Apostle Paul will make this point elsewhere. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. The reason believers possess hope is because we possess Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. And these three characteristics were found amongst these believers. Their hope was a living hope, a vibrant hope, because it was a hope in Christ. It was a hope of righteousness, a hope of the glory of God. It was a hope of salvation and a hope laid up in heaven. And so we notice first the identity of believers. The believer's identity is tied to the relationship that they have in Christ. But the character of the believer is revealed in the triad of faith, love, and hope. But notice that Paul also teaches us that the Christian's salvation is rooted in the powerful working of the gospel. And that is what you find in verses 5 to 8. After telling them about their hope, which is laid up in heaven, he will go on to tell them that this hope, which is laid up in heaven, from came to them through the word of truth, the gospel, the hope that they possess. This hope, which is the basis of their faith and their love, this hope they received, he says, through the gospel. And what he does in verses 5, verses 6 to 8, is that he defines and describes the gospel. First of all, he describes the gospel as the word of truth. He says, this hope, which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. They receive this message that there is life after death, that there is a resurrection from the dead, that there is an eternal communion with God, this hope was presented to them by the gospel. And I want you to notice that he describes the gospel in three ways. First of all, he describes the gospel as the word of truth. 
And he makes clear that the content of the gospel, the message of the gospel, which is good news, is true. The gospel deals with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is contrary to the empty deceit of the false teachers. This gospel is synonymous with the word of God in Colossians 1.25. And this gospel is true. That it is, it is without deception. It does not lead astray. It is true. And why is it true? Well, Ellsworth tells us that it is true because it is a gospel of God. And God is a God of truth in whom there is no deception, there is no darkness, there is no lie. That you can take the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the bank because it is true, it comes from God who is faithful and true. But notice that he describes the gospel not only as the word of truth. He describes the gospel as the power of God. He says of the gospel in verse 6, which has come to you as it has also in the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. This gospel, which is the word of truth, is also the powerful working of God among them, which is bearing fruit. Paul says the gospel which came to you is bearing fruit in the world. It's bringing salvation to sinners. It's transforming lives. That gospel is the power of God, which is bringing forth fruit in your own lives. It's working in your own lives. It is transforming you. Not only is it attracting an increasing number of adherents wherever the gospel goes, but it's working, it's producing in you. It's transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. This gospel, not only is it God's truth, it is God's power to change lives, to make sinners alive. To sanctify those who are captured by sin. But he defines this gospel not only as the power of God that is bearing fruit. He defines the gospel in delectable terms. For it is the grace of God. Go back with me to what he says in verse 6. This gospel, he says, has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. This is the third description of the gospel. The gospel is the word of God, is the power of God. But the gospel is chiefly the grace of God. The content of the gospel is God's grace. In Acts chapter 20 verse 24. Paul in addressing the Ephesian elders would say. But none of these things move me. Referring to the trials and difficulties that were prophesied of him. He says but none of these things move me. 
nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel is chiefly about the grace of God. It is primarily the reason that Paul was so incensed by the Philippians. We're in, or by the Galatians. We're in Galatians 1.6 he says, And I marvel at you, that you're turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ, to a different gospel. You see, the grace of God, or the grace of Christ, is to be seen as the gospel. Because they're turning away, he says, to a different gospel. And the writer points then that the gospel is about God's grace. Because the Colossians had forgotten this notion of grace and returning to human effort. And he reminds them that they owed their salvation to the grace of God. And this gospel of grace they had received from Epaphras in verses 7 and 8. This passage challenges us on a number of fronts. First of all, it challenges us to reflect deeply on our identity as Christians. To those in Colossae, to those in Christ. We often, you know, think of ourselves by our nationality. I know that we should steer clear of generalizations, but if you travel outside of this country, you will find somewhere, everywhere, at least anywhere you go in the world, you'll find a Canadian. And, and, and they don't necessarily walk around with, I am a Canadian on T-shirts, although some do. But they will be going to an airport and they'll be dragging their luggage. And on the luggage is a maple leaf, a dead giveaway. Or they'll be walking down the busiest street somewhere in France or Spain. And they're walking with a, a coffee in their hand. Nobody else around them is doing that because they're going to a cafe. But there's one man that you can find, pick him up on a million, and he's walking around with a coffee. And he's like, you know, this, you know this guy. You know where he's from. And there's nothing wrong to identify with our nationalities. Paul says to those in Colossae, there's a sense in which we are shaped by the area where we live, by our political affinities. We are shaped by the social context, the social matrix in which we have grown up. And many of these things our social background, our cultural characteristics are to be embraced. But in biblical terms, what truly defines us is not our political views. It's not where we live. It's not our blood or our parents. What defines us is the relationship that we are in Christ. That we have been joined to Christ. That we have been taken out of the world We've been taken out from under the control of the devil and we've been placed in Christ. That we are, we are those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are under his lordship. We are joined to him. And when we think of ourselves, first and foremost, we must think of ourselves in relation to Christ. 
I belong to Christ. I have been bought by the blood of Christ. I have been joined to Christ. My body is not my own. It is Christ because I am in him. And the corresponding truth, the correlating truth, that by being in Christ, I'm now a part of a new humanity. I belong to a new family, a new body, the body of Christ, where I have fellow brothers and sisters. Because, you see, I belong to Christ. I am in Christ. How do you think of yourself? How do you define yourself? Well, you ask the world to define People define themselves. They generally think of their, their physical attributes. I, I talked about years ago uh, uh, an, an advertisement in one of the papers, I think it was the New York Times or something like that, where, where this young lady was, was looking for a partner. And she wrote something about herself as astonishingly beautiful. Rare intellect. We think of ourselves in generally physical and external terms. But we who are Christians are here in Toronto. But more importantly, we are in Christ. And that makes all the difference. Because it's only in Christ that we are truly safe. It's only in this relationship, this this intimate spiritual relationship that we are safe and if you are not in Christ you are lost and the good news is that you might be in him simply by turning from sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work the passage also reminds us not only of our identity as Christians we are in Jesus it calls us to recognize the priority of Christian character. We who belong to Christ must be different. This world is characterized by selfishness, by unbelief, and by hopelessness. But genuine Christians are people of faith, are people who trust in the Lord. Moreover, they are people of love, a self-giving love. We're not only concerned about our interests. We're not only concerned in this rat race how to make the most money, how to progress. We're not merely concerned about our own selfish desires. We're concerned about the people of God. We're concerned about the world and men who are lost. There is a genuine love that wishes to exhibit self-sacrifice in the interest of others. Moreover, we are people who are marked by hope. You see, the Christian... I, there, there is a there's a proverb where the proverb says that if you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle, you cannot grind folly out of him. So you grind the fool into dust, you still can't take folly out of him. And if you grind the Christian into dust, you can't extract hope out of him. Because, you see, it is endemic to the Christian life that we are people of hope. That even though we are knocked down and we are given many body blows, 
And the reality is that life for the believer is a difficult veil through which we travel. This is a, this is a road of thorns and tears and pain and suffering. But there is a hope that shines brightly because the hope is in the living and the reigning and the coming Christ. Amen. It is in heaven with God. And you and I must be people who are growing in faith, expecting more and more from God. People who are delighting more by loving our God and loving one another. And people who are vibrant in hope, in the hope of the resurrection and of heaven. But finally, my friends, this passage calls us to be a thankful people. To thank him for the adequacy of the gospel. One writer says that there are many ways in which we may be tempted to feel that the basic gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ is inadequate for our needs. That it needs to be supplemented by experience, by esoteric knowledge that this gospel is too simple too basic it needs more if we are to reach out and reach our full potential but it is interesting that the apostle Paul sees the gospel as sufficient this gospel he sees as the word of truth it is trustworthy it is reliable it is dependable it never leads astray this gospel is the gospel of grace. It tells us what God has done. It tells us that salvation is a finished work. That we do not have to climb stairs in Rome. We don't have to go on pilgrimage. We don't have to do great acts of charity. We simply need to look at what Christ has done. That our salvation has been bought and delivered by the blood of Christ. And that we receive it simply by trusting in him. Amen. This gospel is a gospel of grace. That it is God's initiative. That it is not by our works, but by the grace of God that we are saved. Amen. There can be no sweeter news than God forgives sinners in Jesus Christ. Amen. That we can come naked and simply to the cross and say, simply to the cross I cling. We don't have to work to get in. Jesus Christ has done it all. And you and I must thank God for the sufficiency of the gospel of grace. We must thank him for the good news of the gospel of God's power. For this gospel is a gospel which is able to change lives and to continue to produce fruit. The faith and the love and the hope that they were exhibiting was a product of the gospel and the gospel with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It is this good news that changed them. It is this good news that imparted to them the Spirit of God who continues to change them. And you and I must thank God for the gospel. We must proclaim it and we must live by it. We must never try to add to the gospel because it is sufficient. It is the power of God unto salvation. May God help us. That we will stand by the gospel. That we might seek to explore it more and more. To understand its riches. And to see its power released in our lives. That we may be made more like Jesus Christ for his sake. Amen.